I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. If you're a news nerd, you know the name Michelle Norris. She started here at The Post, where she's now a columnist, and then moved to ABC News. But if you don't know her name, you definitely know her voice from her years as the host of NPR's All Things Considered until 2011. Today, Michelle is back in front of the mic with Your Mama's Kitchen, her fabulous new podcast from Audible and Higher Ground Productions. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on September 6th, Norris talks about the great conversations she has with folks about their mama's kitchen. First guest was none other than Michelle Obama and the importance of that room in the life of a home and a family. Everything happens in the kitchen. If you have a party, where does everybody wind up? They wind up in the kitchen. In your house, where's your loudest laughter? It's often in the kitchen, but so too are your toughest moments. ask you this because you've been in print you've been on television you've been in radio now you're in podcasts why why this medium and then we'll get into specifically about your mama's kitchen well you know podcasting is almost an extension of radio um it's wonderful because people can listen whenever they want uh it's on demand and it gives you the space and the intimacy to have a little bit longer conversation uh, you know this, Jonathan, because you are and you've had an amazing career in journalism also and are a very muscular podcast host yourself. And you know that when people show up, they're comfortable, right? You don't have to get dressed up. You can come in your pajamas if you want to. You can wear your Birkenstocks. You can just be who you are and then be fully in that space. And that just kind of leads to a different kind of conversation. Right, right. And you, you've been my guest on, on this podcast for like five years ago. We're gonna get into that a little bit yeah. later. But let's talk about, about your mama's kitchen. You've said that these conversations tap into, quote, emotion, identity, nostalgia, mm -hmm. family dynamics, and cultural tumult. Is that because of the room or because of the people you're talking to? Both, both. Because we talk to very interesting people and we ask them this question, that's how every, every podcast begins. Tell me about your mama's kitchen. But it's also because of the space. Everything happens in the kitchen. I mean, think about it. If you have a party, where does everybody wind up? They wind up in the kitchen. In your house, where's your loudest laughter? It's often in the kitchen, but so too are your toughest moments. Your, your, your tears often happen in the kitchen too. It's where we pay bills. It's where we dance to music. It's where we spar with our siblings. It's where the outside world comes in because of the radio or the television in that space, because of the debates you have at the kitchen table, and because of the kinds of things that are served up. They live in us in important ways, not just because of the meals, but because of all the traditions that are wrapped up in the meal. Sometimes it's a way for people to hold on to some distant part of themselves. You move north from the south, and the, the dinner that's served on the table still reflects, you know, your traditions from the South. You came to America from someplace else, and you're able to hold on to that distant land that you had to let go of when you came to this country, but you can still serve up a piece of that culture by the debate you have at the kitchen table, but also by the food that you serve up. And so the kitchen is this, this it's a heartbeat of the home. And it winds up, the things that we absorb in that kitchen, they live inside us long after we've left our childhood homes. Right, and you know, of course, 
um, you begin your debut of this new podcast series is with the former first lady of the United States, Michelle Obama. And listening to that conversation, I was like, um, my mom didn't make didn't make birthday cakes, but I know exactly <laughs> the birthday cake that Mrs. Robinson made um, made for Michelle Obama, and, and also the I had forgotten about the rice she was talking about. Oh, that I made absorbed it the tomato. It's so good. It's a bell ringer. Sorry to interrupt you, but it is a bell ringer of a recipe. I mean, I've made it twice, <laughs> and I thought I'd have leftovers. Gone completely. Right, People were scape, scraping the the rice out of you know how it kind of burns a little in the bottom of the pan yes. when you make a dish like this. They were like scraping it up off the pan to get every little bit of it. Well, I mean, and you know, as she was talking about this rice dish, I was remembering, oh yeah, that rice. I couldn't stand that rice <laughs> when I when I was a kid. I was like, where? What's this red stuff on the on the rice? But. Um, you talked to Michelle Obama, uh, Gail King from CBS This Morning, Kerry Washington, Conan O'Brien. What's the, I mean, these are people who are well known, but did yes. you learn yes. something from each of these conversations about these people that you didn't already know? Every single time, every single time. I mean, take the former first lady, Michelle Obama. She has written two books. She has traveled to what, more than 60 cities on book tour probably. Um, there have been countless profiles written about her. And yet in that conversation, we learned new things because we were we were walking through a different door to have that conversation. So, you know, these 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 conversations are interesting because the people are interesting. They're interesting because they tell us a little bit about their culinary history, but they're also interesting because we learn new things about people that we already know quite a lot about. Mm -hmm. And again, um, in listening to the the interview with Michelle Obama, um, that's the real her. Yes, this, that's that's and <laughs> and that speaks to that speaks to your skill as an interviewer, but it also speaks to speaks to her comfort. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's the role of a podcast host is to make make the guests feel comfortable to be yes. their true authentic selves. Yes. Like, for instance, she talks about hair. Gail King talks about this also in the episode that now is uh, available wherever you find your podcast. They both talked about, you know, something that happens in the kitchen that has nothing to do with food. If right. you're a little brown girl, you were probably getting your hair fried, dyed and laid to the side. <laughs> <laughs> in your mama's kitchen. And it right. was not a quick process. It took a long time. And Mrs. Obama talked about that, you know, talked about the the way that she would spar with her mom because it didn't feel good getting all those kinks combed out. But she also noted that, you know, our hair is beautiful the way it comes out of our head. But when you live in a country where the beauty standards are a little bit different than that, that's why they were spending so much time trying to tame our hair. So we looked, you know, when we left the house, when we went to the first day of school, we looked like Brett girls with our hair blowing in the wind. And as soon as the moisture got to it, zip, <laughs> it reverted to its natural stake. And you were right back in the kitchen with your mom trying to straighten it again. Well, you know, you, that actually raises a very good point. You know, it is your mama's kitchen. It's supposed to be about cooking and food. But that cultural point that the kitchen was also the place where, where you got your hair did. Um, mm -hmm. and, and Mrs. Obama pointed out that because of the epic fights 
between she and, and her mother, Mrs. Robinson. Once Mrs. Robinson found out that the neighbor lady did hair, she sent little Michelle over there. And Mrs. <laughs> Obama says she was five years old. Yeah. yeah. Five years it, old. It, it starts that it starts that early. But you know, Jonathan, the kitchen is also a place where we come to understand our parents also, because we watch them in the kitchen. We watch how they deal with the outside world. A lot of people talk about, you know, everyone used to have a phone in the kitchen. You remember those days where you had a phone, like a oh, princess yeah. phone oh, yeah. on the wall? And you'd watch your mom or your dad, you know, talking to somebody in the outside world and you learn, okay, that's not the voice that I get <laughs> when they're talking to me. <laughs> but, but they're, you know, negotiating something on, you know, with someone in the outside world. We talked to um, Hari Kondabolu, who is a comedian. And he talked about how he figured out that his mom, who left India to come to America, gave up her job as a doctor. And he realized that the kitchen was a place of drudgery for her until she figured out how to turn it into a place of adventure. And she used cookbooks, uh, you know, to understand American cuisine, but also just to try something new. And he also realized that his mother for instance, realized that she didn't have elders around because their grandparents lived very, very far away. And he realized that his mom was often negotiating in the kitchen to find a space for him to spend time with the elderly neighbors that lived elsewhere in their apartment building. And it was in part because she needed a babysitter, but more than anything, she wanted him to be around elders because she thought that was so important that they had specific lessons to teach and that he, she wanted him to respect older people. And he figured that out by watching her in the kitchen. And he, he, and there are several examples of this where people talk about the the things that they learned watching the adults, and then how that affected the choices that they made later in life, the mm -hmm. friends they made, the careers they pursued, um, the way that they learned how to deal with money, for instance. You know, watching some in some cases parents count their pennies. Jose Andreas, uh, in an episode that's coming up, talked about how he remembers not the meals at the beginning of the month when money was plentiful and the cupboards were full. What he remembers is how his mom had to improvise at the end of the month and how that helped make him the chef that he is today. Watching her open the cupboards and realize, mm, I only have this and I only have that, but I'm going to figure out how to turn up some, turn that into something delicious and wonderful and mask the fact that I'm just dealing with the only things that are left in the cupboard. And that that influenced the chef that he became and the humanitarian that he is now, because when he's jetting into these countries to feed people after the wildfires or after some sort of natural disaster or now feeding people in Ukraine, he's in that same position. What do I have to work with? How can I take whatever I have and turn it into something delicious that will nourish people, but also nourish their souls? Right, because he, right. he always said meals are about community. Yes. That's how communities are brought together. In, in your response to that to that that question, um, I'm going to go to a, an audience question a little sooner uh, than I anticipated. This is a question from Hillary um, Markow in Illinois, and she asks, "How do childhood food memories reflect your culture?" And I want to expand on that because I thought of this question. I wanted to come to this question when you were talking about the person you interviewed whose mother used the kitchen to find elders for her, <laughs> for her child, for her son, 
um, to get to know and to learn from. So how do childhood memories reflect the culture of the people in those kitchens? Well, there, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to turn the question on you and say, tell me about your mother's kitchen. You know, what are the, what are the cultural things that you learned? For many of us, our parents came from the South, right? And maybe migrated North or, or you were still in the South. So there were certain things that they served that um, it's often country food, mm-hmm. you know, um, for people who come from different places, from different lands, it's the food that's the, the food that they grew up with. And another thing that comes up again and again, Jonathan, is for people who were raised by immigrant parents, they as kids remembered that they wanted to eat tater tots. Huh. They wanted pizza. They wanted all the things that they thought were American. And then as they got older, they realized I should have sopped up as much wisdom about making tortillas, making idli, um, you know, an Indian breakfast dish, making, you know, whatever that culture served up. I should have learned as much as I could at that time because they're now figuring out how to serve that in their own kitchens, you know, when they have dinner parties, when they're trying to feed their own kids. So culture lives through our food. It's, It's part of how we... Um, express ourselves. It's part of how we define ourselves. And that that and and think about our food culture today. When you go out to eat, you know, maybe you go out for burgers and fries, but what are we often doing? We want to explore another culinary culture through food. I did that myself during during the COVID lockdown. I became more adventurous. I couldn't travel with my family, but what I could do is travel in the kitchen. You know, I could serve up, you know, on Friday night, we'd often try something new. Korean, Indian, Greek, um, South African cuisine, you know, let's try East African cuisine. I mean, we were just, you know, doing what we could to create adventure in spaces when we were locked down. You know, as you ask about my my mama's kitchen, my my mama doesn't cook. Well, when she cooked when I was a kid, she did not cook very well. But when I think of a kitchen, I think of my grandmother's kitchen, mm-hmm. my mother's mother, when I would spend the summers uh, down in North Carolina. And I can still I can still smell it. I can still see see the plate with the paper towel uh, on the bottom with the leftovers from my grandmother and grandfather. Every morning, my grandmother fried a whole chicken, um, fried up eggs, bacon, sausage, potatoes, and they would have that for breakfast in the, in the morning. And then whatever was left over would be sitting on the stove with aluminum foil on top. And I would pray every morning, please let there be a wing. Please let there be a wing. Uh, and you know, I'd pull it over and I, and, and I would see it. But that for me is probably the most vivid. I can see it. I can smell the, smell the aroma in the kitchen as I'm telling you this um, right now. Um, I want to go to another audience question, Michelle. Um, and this one's interesting. This is from George Holmes in Arkansas. He asks, interested in how you think the home kitchen has changed as a gathering place in the last 25, 50, 100 years? Well, that, that's an interesting question. And we actually spent some time talking to Michael Pollan, um, the cookbook. Oh, actually, he's a, he's writes about food. He's not necessarily a cookbook author, but you you may have, have heard of him. He wrote The um, Carnivore's Dilemma. He spends a lot of time thinking about what we eat and how we eat. And 
and we spent some time talking to him about how kitchens have changed. And kitchens sometimes are show places now, right? We have the big island. We um, have these beautiful gleaming appliances, whether you use them or not. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a space where people show off a little bit, Um, but there's still a gathering place, right? You still have that place where you eat, often where you eat at the counter. So one of the things that, that has changed over time is that kitchens are bigger than they used to be. Um, kitchens are a place where lots of other things happen because we have more space in them. And one of the things that's changed over time is I think that I call this your mama's kitchen. And I, I realize that I'm gendering the space a little bit, but let's let's be honest, kitchens are somewhat gendered spaces. Women still do the majority of the cooking. But one of the things that has changed is it's no longer seen as the sole province of women. I think a lot more men cook today. I think a lot more young people are interested in cooking today. You have met all of my children, Jonathan. They all cook. And they all cook enthusiastically. And part of that is because that's the way we live. We all cook communally. Um, I think for a younger generation also that grew up watching Iron Chef and grew up watching competitive cooking shows, it sparked, you know, an interest in them. And because we, I think, have a more expansive view of culture just generally, people are more willing to cook outside of their own culture. And I think all of that is is reflected in the kitchen. But one of the big changes is the architecture of the kitchen, you know, that Mm -hmm. with all these big appliances that look almost like Buicks in your kitchen, big stoves, big (laughs) refrigerators, all kinds of appliances, you know, kitchens (laughs) used to, the kitchen you described your grandmother's kitchen, I bet it was really simple. I bet the stove was white. Yep. I bet she probably had a skillet, a good saucepan, a Dutch oven, and maybe later on an electric fry pan. Um, Not an electric fry pan. Did she have a microwave? Probably not. Uh, that may have come. Um, no, no, no. Well, I mean, you're, you're kind to think that I'm younger than I am, but you know, this is before the microwave. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm <laughs> saying is, kitchens were oven. just were simpler, right? Now right. people have appliance garages because they have right. crock pots and and air fryers and all kinds of things. You know, the coffee maker itself. I mean, the coffee maker often was just you know a percolator that you'd put on right. the. So kitchens have become more complicated spaces, but at their core, they still are communal spaces where a lot of really important things happen. And many of our most vivid memories, I loved listening to you talk about your grandmother and her skillet and all that fried food. I am very hungry. There may be some fried chicken in my future now because (laughs) I now have a hankering for it. But, you know, those memories are just they 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 t- they hit all of our emotions and they live in us. Um, I want we're running out of time, but I can't let you go um, without talking about another um, big passion of yours. As I mentioned before, this is your second appearance on Capehart. Your first was back in 2018. That's that five years ago. Five years ago. Um, and you came on to talk about the race card project, which you created in 2010 when you were at NPR. Um, You have a book coming out in January entitled Our Hidden Conversations based on what you learned from the Race Card Project. With a decade's worth of real stories, Mm -hmm. what did you learn? um, What did you learn about race? 
from those conversations? Well, the biggest lesson I learned is I created the Race Car Project because I thought no one wanted to talk about race, and I was wrong. The biggest lesson I learned is that a lot of people actually do want to talk about it, and they don't want to necessarily participate in these big um, roiling debates about critical race theory and affirmative action. Yes, that's part of the conversation, but so many of the stories that we've collected, we collected more than 500,000 stories, and about 1,000 of them are in the book along with essays that, that I wrote, 13 essays that I wrote. But people write to us about very intimate things. They write about their kids. They write about their marriage. They write about what happened to them in the break room in their job. They write about their commute, about what happens when they travel and they're passing through TSA or what they do or do not see when they're looking out the window you know, on a, on a trip back home. I mean, the, the stories are very intimate and very candid. And it's allowed me to really understand America better because so often when we talk about race and Jonathan, you know this from the work that you do, we're often whipsawed by the controversy of the moment. And we don't spend as much time listening to people talk about the things that confine or define them, you know, in issues around race. I've learned that a lot of people are really just struggling to figure it out. A lot of the questions, a lot of the six word stories come to us. I collect stories about race and it starts with six words and then people often explain the backstory when they send us their, their submissions. Um, a lot of them come in the form of a question. People are just scratching their heads trying to figure it out. And they find us often because they turn to Google to ask mm -hmm. a very candid and intimate question about, you know, I'm raising a mixed race child. How do I do their hair? Um, I'd like to speak up at work, but I'm afraid people will think I'm an idiot or that they'll think that I'm racist. They don't turn to their spouse or their best friend or their coworker. They type a question into Google or Bing or whatever search engine they use. And they find the race card project and they wind up sharing their story because we asked them, how did you find us? And so many times they say Google search or something like this. So it tells me that there's this big conversation that's happening underground that we usually don't have access to because it's the conversation mm -hmm. about race that you never get to hear. And that's why I'm so excited to share this book because people will now be able to tap into that. Real quickly, here's the one six word story you told me back in 2018 that I have not forgotten. Here are the six words. Grandma sent $100 when we <laughs> broke up. It's the backstory. I, I, I love I love this story because it's it's ambiguous and your interpretation depends on your particular point of view that was sent to us by someone in Texas. And I often, when I do workshops around the race car project, I often use this card and ask people what they think it is. So Jonathan, if, how do you interpret it? Um, grandma sent me $100 when we broke up. I mean, it sounds like this person's grandmother sent them $100 when they broke up with the person that grandma didn't like. But if memory serves, is yeah. that actually what happened? Well, you know, we this person didn't send in a backstory, so I'm not e e exactly sure of that. And um, and I, I actually do interviews, oral histories with a lot of people. I have not done one with this person. And so that's one with, you've given me an assignment. I need to go and find out the story, but I like the ambiguity because you would think that this is what happened. And when they actually submitted it, the clue that they gave is that grandma might be consoling them. 
you know, you, you, you broke up with someone you really cared about. And maybe this is something that will allow you to go out and have a nice night on the town with your friends. Um, maybe forget about the pain in your heart because you had this big breakup. So again, you know, people look at it and think, phew, glad, glad that, that, that person's gone, you know, because grandma maybe didn't want that person in their right. grandchild's life. But the the real story is perhaps very different that maybe grandma was trying to console someone. But even if it was a story where grandma wanted someone to go, does that mean that necessarily grandma's biased or racist? Maybe grandma was looking forward to someone who would make tortillas with her on the holidays or make kugel or, you know, gumbo or whatever your tradition was. Maybe she wanted those traditions to continue and didn't see that possible. But the other thing I've learned, Jonathan, from the Race Card Project is even if that was the story, what happens as time, as people get to know each other, as people are more proximus with someone, the heart opens up, right? And mm -hmm. they may have been, oh, is this going to work, this mixed marriage? I'm not sure that that's going to work. And then they get to know someone and they get to know their family and they realize that they're not losing something, they're gaining something. Right. And that's reflected in another six word story where someone, um, he lives in Hawaii, he's white, his wife is Korean, their son is mixed race. And his six words were, my son's not half, he's double. Oh, wow. Wow. So, so Michelle, so then Michelle, in the little bit of time we have left, what are your six words? Still more work to be done. Still more work to be done. Because we often think of this thing, oh, it's complicated, it's difficult, can we please be done? Like it's a, like it's a race, like there's going to be a, a black and white flag at the end, whew, we're done, nice. we've reached the finish line. That was what post-racial was all about. We have a lot of work to do. You know, if you read the pages of the Washington Post, that's evident every single day. And one thing we can do to figure out how to work together is to make space for people in your life that maybe you don't agree with, to figure out how to work productively with someone that you don't agree with. I think that's the greatest skill going forward for young people in a country that is still pretty divided. Um, how can you work productively with someone that you don't agree with, that maybe you don't even like? And we need people to do that in Congress. We need people to do that on the factory floor. We sometimes need to do that at our Thanksgiving table. Um, but we all share this country and this planet, and we do have to figure that out. So there's still more work to be done. One more quick question. When we talked in 2018, you told me you had 250,000 postcards that had been archived by then. Um, here we are five years later. How many do you have now? It's a half a million and counting. And they're not always postcards because people still do send us postcards. It started with mm -hmm. actual postcards. Right. Now the submissions come in digitally and they, they just, they come over the transom every day, often in waves. A lot of young people are back to school. The race car project is used in hundreds of schools around the country. So we're seeing cards come in through the connection, our partnerships through schools, but often it's just from individuals who are trying to figure out how to, how to have a voice in this conversation, who want to be heard, who want to be seen, heard, and valued, and are looking for a space where they can speak their truth and not be judged and not face finger wagging. And it's interesting, you know, if you go to the Race Car Project website, and I hope people do, you will see a lot of things on that website that you do not agree with. You will see things that will make you uncomfortable, but it's a conversation about race, so that should be expected. And what we are doing through the project is holding a mirror up to society. And you will not like everything you see in that mirror, but you will have a much better understanding of the country that we live in.
Um, and that's why it's a mirror, is to reflect back <laughs> what, it's, what it sees. <laughs> Journalist, colleague, friend, Michelle Norris, uh, host of Your Mama's Kitchen podcast on Audible. Thank you so much for coming back to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me. Love you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.